1: Here's a fun quiz question. What distinction does Charles Carroll, 1737 to 1832, hold in American history? Answer, he was the longest surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence and the only Catholic to have signed it. And therein lies a tale of religious prejudice against Catholics and the ingenious and determined effort over decades of leaders like Carroll and the founding family of Marilyn Calverts to prove their devotion to their country while not compromising the tenets of their faith. In his fascinating 2021 book, Our Dear bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America, Michael D. Breidenbach traces in detail the delicate balance Catholics in the period of roughly 1600 to 1832 had to maintain in order to secure basic civil and property rights in both Britain and the New World colonies while avoiding excommunication by the Pope for swearing oaths to British rulers that often entailed denying certain rights that the Pope claimed. We read in the book about the crucial importance of the exact wording of a series of oaths crafted and argued about over centuries and the implications of even a slight change to each for the often persecuted Catholic minority on both sides of the Atlantic. A major contribution of this book is its discussion of the conciliary movement or conciliarism and its intellectual and political impact on American politicians of the early 18th and early 19th centuries. Raging back to medieval figures and then to John Locke and forward it into the early years of the United States as a nation proper, Breidenbach illustrates the difference between religious toleration versus religious liberty and helps us see why the matter of bishops and even church architecture were matters of such contention in the founding era. This is not a book just for Catholics, but for all of us who care about and live under the protection of the First Amendment. And I'm not sorry, of the, of the protection of the First Amendment. And as Breidenbach makes clear, under this part of Article 6 of the Constitution, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. As we saw during the hearings for Amy Comanied Barrett's initial judicial appointment, this issue and anti Catholic sentiment live with us still. Our dear bot liberty, Catholics and religious toleration in early America makes intellectual, legal, religious and political history all come alive. Is global history too, given its coverage of all of these matters in locales such as Jamaica and Barbados? We see powerful, influential Catholics like the Carrolls, including John Carroll, 1735 to 1815, the first Roman Catholic bishop and archbishop in the United States, taking both brave public stands and maneuvering tirelessly and shrewdly behind the scenes with non-Catholic allies like James Madison and Benjamin Franklin on behalf of religious liberty. This is a work abounding in insights about heretofore little recognized, but crucial players and modes of thinking that made us the freedom-focused country we became. Give a listen. Hello everyone, my name is Hope J. Lehman and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Michael D. Breidenbach, author of the 2021 book, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. I'm so glad you were able to join with us today, Michael, to talk about your fascinating book.
2: I'm delighted to be here, Hope, and thanks very much.
1: Well, I read every word and learned a huge amount about the terribly unjust ways that Catholics were treated in early modern Britain and in the American colonies and first decades of the American Republic and how much they contributed to our founding documents. I'm not a Catholic, so this was all new to me. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the title of your book. I'd like to ask you first about the phrase deer bought. In this case, is the word deer used in the sense of something being expensive and not easily obtained, that is, something for which sacrifice must be made.
2: That's right. Um, this comes from a letter that Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the aforementioned only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence, uh, that he wrote in 1760, and it's a very prescient document um, that he wrote um, to his uh, British correspondent. He says, a-, a change in our constitution is, I think, dear at hand, near at hand. Our dear-bought liberty stands on the brink of destruction. Is such a change to be wished for by Roman Catholics? They enjoy great peace and tranquility under his present majesty. I mean, in England, Mm. they perhaps enjoy the same hereafter in Maryland. But men's minds and dispositions in that country must undergo a great change before so favorable a revolution can happen. So he's already talking about a kind of revolution in the way that British citizens think about uh, their constitution and Catholics within it. Um, He was uh, somewhat of a reluctant revolutionary uh, in 1776. He was uh, kind of a pinch hitter, if you will, Um, one of the the longest surviving, but also one of the last signing um, uh, delegates. Um, But uh, he's already thinking about the ways in which Catholics like himself uh, might gain from uh, certain changes that are happening in, in the British uh, empire at this at this moment. So he thinks that the kind of liberties that all English people enjoy um, are dear bought, right? In terms of wars, in terms of um, the kind of sacrifices that people make uh, politically, um, socially, uh, economically, as well. Um, and Catholics are part of that story, he says. And one of the things that um, uh, I pair with that uh, epigraph is is another, um, which is. Um, that uh, a Protestant talking about how their liberty is dear bought, and in the same sentence, um, or this is rather a poem, um, saying that uh, Catholics are not part of that. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, they're the very very opposite of that liberty. Um, So that's the kind of contrast that this book explores, um, how Catholics were able to become American um, and uh, present themselves as, as safe for the American Republic.
1: Yes, I'd like to ask about the, the 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 phrase about you make a distinction in the book between tolerating and, and not just Catholics but any religious group that's that's on the on the outside. How does that How does that differ from how does tolerance toleration differ from religious liberty and religious religious freedom? For example, how does John Locke play into this? And James Madison? The terminology has it changed over the centuries? I know that in the title of the book you use both the words liberty and toleration.
2: Yes, and that's deliberate because you know, in the 17th and 18th century, um, centuries, these terms were not, um, extremely distinct and clear. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes authors would use, um, toleration, religious toleration and religious liberty interchangeably. Um, this comes out of, um, a work, um, in a chapter that I've co-edited in the Cambridge Companion to the first amendment and religious liberty. And that author says that, you know, if you really want to press, the historical evidence to find um, a really clear distinction, I think we're we're going to be a bit disappointed. But I think in general, um, there is a conceptual difference um, that it's a helpful helpful kind of hermeneutic, at least for modern readers, even if the historical figures don't always adhere to this um, all the time. And the distinction is this, toleration is a kind of grant that the political authority or authorities offer certain, typically, minorities, whether that's, um, in this case, religious minorities, it could be other sorts of minorities. And so, in other words, it's, it's for the political authority to give. And the corollary to that, of course, is that it's in the political authority's uh, right to take away. Hmm. And so there's a sense of, of, of arbitrariness um, to this um, conception of, of toleration. Toleration also connotes um, a kind of displeasure with what is being tolerated that um, you'd rather not be the case or you rather think it's um, uh, unfortunate or worse, um, perhaps a a kind of evil, Um, but you nevertheless want to secure some other greater good, um, the common good um, for the sake of civil peace and security, something like that. So you would grant um, toleration um, to those religious um, adherents, for instance. Uh, Religious liberty, as I understand it, especially in the American founding era, is um, something that it inheres in the dignity of a person, right? As a human being, in other words. Um, this is what um, you know, political theorists and philosophers call natural rights. And it's the, the sort of uh, right that one has by um, virtue of being a human being. Um, and it's not something that the government necessarily gives. Um, But the government um, or whatever political authority um, established um, secures in 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 the individuals um, for whom it has care. Um, So that's the sort of distinction that uh, I see. And it's it's helpful as a very broad sense of sort of the arc of this history, that Catholics um, are allowed certain religious liberties when we look at the 17th century English context, for instance. But by the time we get to um, the American founding, especially the First Amendment, um, people have argued that uh, we have a new kind of uh, religious uh, regime here, one of religious liberty, one in which at least the federal government and many state governments recognize that natural right, and they'll use that language, natural right. Um, and so that's generally the distinction. Now, I, I eventually I had to choose for the subtitle, right, um, whether to use religious liberty or toleration. Um, part, part of the reason I went with um, toleration is because, as you mentioned, our do about liberty, the liberty is already in the title, but there's also a, a deeper conceptual point that I want to highlight, which is that toleration s- still is a kind of regime in America, by the time we get to the First Amendment and indeed I would argue even today. So let me just explain that um, for a moment. You mentioned Amy Coney Coney Barrett and and other sort of high-profile Catholic figures who um, in in many ways have been, in in many indirect ways and direct ways, been sort of tested for their religion, in this case Catholicism. Mm. Um, And it's the sort of, uh, it's a sort of motto that I use in the book which is you don't um, get your liberty unless you pledge your loyalty Mm. and I think if that's the kind of bargain that um, Catholics have to or indeed anyone has to um, uh, engage in um, then that is something like a toleration regime it's not the kind of toleration regime that we get in the 17th century which I hope we'll be able to talk about with the Calverts and the founders of Maryland but it is something of a tacit acknowledgement that as the naturalization oath um, that has basically uh, remained unchanged since the 1790s. Says that you have to abjure uh, or renounce all foreign allegiances, mm. right? Anything that would and 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 say that you will uphold the constitution. Every public office holder says that as well. And so you basically have to uh, say that sort of loyalty test um, before you are secure in your liberties. So if if that's the case, then we live in a kind of tolerationist regime still. And that's part of the, the kind of uh, underlying um, arguments of the book.
1: Hmm. Well, speaking of which, a large portion of your book is is the matter of O's, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's fascinating in the book how how the slightest change would would make or break. In fact, you even have some really dramatic scenes in the book where people are about to embark on the on the journey from England. To the New World, to Maryland specifically. And there would be these agents of the state or actually kind of private sort of contractors that would go onto the onto the boats and, and try to determine if these if these people had either sworn the oath or if the the oath, if the oath had been properly ministered and so forth. I wonder, could you tell us about the oath of allegiance and supremacy and why some Catholics objected to them? And what the what were the repercussions for those who refused to swear to them?
2: That's such an important question, Hope. It, it forms the sort of litmus test this oath does for English Catholics at the time, and this will overshadow so much of um, Catholic immigration to early America. So the Oath of Allegiance um, was um, issued in 1606. That's under the reign of King James I. And King James I um, is fearful of at least certain Catholics, uh, namely Guy Fox and his mm-hmm co-conspirators who attempted to assassinate him and members of parliament in what is now called the gunpowder plot Mm. of 1605. And this sort of coalesced all the kind of um, fears and um, rumors and conspiratorial thinking that uh, was part and parcel with um, partisan culture at the time. And it sort of put a very, very fine point on uh, the Catholic threat and that Catholic threat was not just domestic, as Guy Fox was, but um, an international threat, one that came from Spain and France and other sort of mortal enemies of, of England. And so, I mean, even as they married um, into uh, yeah, these right. uh, Catholic dynasties, um, we can get to that too. Um, but that was the kind of sort of Protestant polemic, right? Um, and now it has a face, and that face is Guy Fox. Mm. And uh, you know, shortly thereafter. Um, uh, the king issues this Oath of Allegiance. And there's several clauses in this Oath of Allegiance. I mean, one is fairly unremarkable, which is that um, the oath um, giver has to um, swear that he will um, uh, pledge true allegiance to the king and his successors, um, that he's the rightful king and so on. Uh, But the other clauses um, put Catholics in a precarious position. Um, one clause um, states that um, you have to um, uh, renounce as damnable as a damnable doctrine um, that you know uh, kings can be who are excommunicated by um, the Pope or even other bishops, Catholic bishops, um, uh, can therefore be um, in, in the worst case murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the very least, uh, that uh, the Pope, um, you, have to, you have to reject the, the belief that the Pope can absolve um, English people of their oaths to the English king. So, in other words, you have to pledge your full loyalty. It's not simply enough to say, yes, I, I pledge allegiance to King James I. You have to say that um, I'm going to alert the king if I hear of any conspiratorial plots against his head. I have to renounce a, a, a belief as damnable Right and heretical, um, that is effectively against tyrannicide, right? Um, or or regicide, um, simply, right. But, if, but if is the that Pope so unreasonable?
1: Is that so unreasonable though, to expect that someone would swear an oath to that effect? I mean, to, I well, I promise not to overthrow the government <laughs> right,
2: right. In some ways, right. This is um this is a statement, a very precise, uh confessionally edged. Statement mm-hmm. against treason mm-hmm. um, at, at a time when politics and religion were, were ineluctably bound together, um, and so that's precisely right. Isn't isn't this a reasonable statement? Well, the problem is the Pope at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Pope Pius, said that any Catholic who so swears this oath will be um, ipso facto uh, by swearing it excommunicated. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are, these are very bad options for English Catholics. On the one hand, um, if you don't swear the oath, um, you'll be considered, um, you know, a potential traitor. Um, and, and there are indeed penalties for not swearing the oath. Hmm. On the other hand, if you swear it, um, you, you are no longer uh, part of the Roman Catholic Church.
1: What, what were the
2: penalties um, it depended on the kind of person you were. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, we have some evidence that um, English Catholic aristocrats and there were English Catholic aristocrats, um, mm-hmm. those who um, you know endured in their their rural titles and, and states even after the English Reformation, um, they would get a, they would get a pass or they would get a very light penalty, maybe a, a fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would be degrees of, of uh, fines if, if, if you continue to, um, uh, you know, refuse to swear the oath. Um, it would start with, you know, um, fines, but um, ultimately, you know, the penalty could be imprisonment and, and perhaps even death. Mm. Um, so, I mean, th- these are these are live options here. Um, and uh, Catholics, you know, this this is a kind of litmus test for loyalty. This is this is sort of the King James version, right, of of Catholic allegiance. And so what what presents uh, you know, a problem here is that, as you mentioned, every um, migrant, right, emigrant um, from England, Uh, to the New World, as they called it, right? whether it's Virginia at the time or um, uh, Massachusetts or later Maryland, um, any of the colonies, there were statutory laws that said that every person has to swear the Oath of Allegiance before they um, uh, come on board the ship. Mm. And so, as you mentioned, there are ship searchers. kind of, you know, uh, people who have, um, incentives, right. Sixpence to, to tender this oath to everyone. And what I found in the archives is that there was a great controversy regarding, um, the first, uh, immigrant, uh, group from England to the new the new colony of Maryland. And, uh, there, there was some, um, controversy about whether all the people who'd Went on that ship. In fact, tendered that oath, uh, swore that oath, and the ships were recalled back to London. Um, and Lord Baltimore uh, was incensed by this. He thought that this was yet another um, conspiracy against his colony, um, as a as a colony that was um, friendly to Catholics. Um, and, uh, so they, the ships came back and, and, uh, they were, um, you know, certified as all swearing the oath and, and they moved on. What I found though, was that, um, people at the time who is, who were on the ship, um, uh, suggested that, um, perhaps some of these people, um, moved to the Isle of Wight, which is North, uh, in England in the, just off the coast. And, um, they boarded the ship there, um, out of the purview of these ship searchers, hmm. So there were perhaps some Catholics um, who refused to swear this oath um, because of scruples of conscience, right? They didn't want to be, um, they believed this this papal uh, indict against the oath. um, And so um, uh, they refused to swear it. Um, And that explains why, for instance, um, the Ark and the Dove, these two ships, um, the records are a little bit um, uh, vague on how many actual people came on those ships. And that would be an explanation for why there were some clandestine voyagers
1: Well, they were just evading it, literally, literally uh, skirting around it physically.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, and but that shows all the more the the, the high stakes mm. um, uh, for something like uh, a colony like Maryland that w- would be friendly to Catholics, that not just friendly but um, uh, actively inviting Catholics to join. And it's 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 amazing, isn't it that. Um, a, Colony in England uh, would be allowed to, to be friendly um, to uh, to Catholics, and perhaps if we can talk a- about that too. Right, um, how these um, Catholics were able to negotiate these two identities as English and as Catholic.
1: Well, I think the fact that that you, you mentioned the fact that there were people were tolerant of certain ranks because Colver James, I believe, was it James the First or Charles, his his a previous sovereign that was even though one of the calverts declared i mean had was had not been a catholic openly and then he 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 took a great risk and he he just said i am a catholic i'm openly openly expressing myself as a catholic and and yet he was still he was still fairly powerful
2: at that that's point. right that's right i think we, th- there's a danger of overemphasizing um the anti-catholicism in uh, in England at this time um, it, it, to be sure um, the Catholics are, are certainly not free um, to move to to move about the country as it were um, there, there are physical restrictions on their movement um, uh, Catholicism is underground um, there are priests who have to be in plain clothes um, you know it's really basically the aristocrats the remaining Catholic aristocrats who house these priests um, and uh, provide um, the conditions for Catholics to pursue their religion extremely quietly. Um, at the same time, um, uh, th- there are movements, especially at the very top. Um, uh, James, Charles the for instance, marries a Catholic, uh, Henrietta Maria, um, mm-hmm. from from France, and mm-hmm. so.
1: And then her and is Maryland named after her? Is that correct?
2: Or that's right. That's right. And there was an interesting side story to the the name of Maryland because. Um, there was a proposal by um, uh, the the king to name it uh, Mariana um, as a kind of Latinate to to Maria, um, to which George Calvert reminded um, the king that uh, Mariana is very, very close to um, Juan de Mariana, um, the very infamous uh, Catholic Jesuit theologian who um, was seen to justify tyrannicide (laughs) And so, um, you know, let's, let's stay away from that appellation, uh, uh, O King. And so this shows at once George Calvert's uh, familiarity with Catholic theology and um, uh, political theology as well, Um, but also his um, sort of unforgiving loyalty to the king, right? Let's, let's be as far away as possible from anything that smells of tyrannicide um, in, in a Catholic tradition, but also let's name it after uh, you know royalty, right, to show our loyalty. Um, and so what we find um, in, in Maryland is, um, is, is the Calverts, this is George Calvert and then his son uh, Cecil Calvert, the first and second Lords Baltimore, respectively, um, trying to, as it were, bend over backwards to show their loyalty, um, uh, because of course the colony is granted by the, the, the monarch, um, it exists uh, through royal charter and um, provides them uh, the conditions for Catholics to uh, live under laws that are very favorable to them in ways that uh, are not the case in England.
1: Well, it was, I'm glad you mentioned your work in the archives, because one of the fascinating things in the book is you actually found uh, a copy or a, uh, the actual document that one of the figures in your book, one of the oaths that he's labored over and and managed to manipulate the wording of so as to suit the, the whole Catholic toleration po- policy in the New World, can you describe what that document was, who wrote it, and what 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 its what its significance was?
2: Well, as you can imagine, I was ecstatic when I finally found this. Yeah, um, I was like,
1: "Yeah, this is it! This is it! This is a key to everything I've been studying." <laughs> and, and that must um, have been a stunt. Was the librarian surprised what you found, or just was or did you get up and say, "Look, did you know that this was"? Is-
2: <laughs> well, you know, um, these things are, are serendipitous. I was um, uh, reading the, the great work of uh, an early modern Catholic historian in, in England, uh, Michael Questier, um, and he did a very fine letterpress edition of um, some documents relating to um, uh, Catholics and the, uh, James, uh, Charles I, um, and uh, some of the Catholic bishops and so on surrounding some of the controversies at the time. And uh, he mentions in a footnote, Lord Baltimore's oath. Um, and th- there's not much um, more mentioned there, but I thought, you know, this is, this is something. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to um, obtain a, a visiting scholarship at the University of Oxford, and, and while there, I, I was able to go to London where this um, diocesan archives um, exists in um, Kensington. And uh, I found um, a, a copy um, of this oath um, by these um, English Catholic secular clergymen, in other words, sort of diocesan priests, if there were dioceses at the time, as opposed to religious priests like Dominicans, Franciscans, Jesuits. Mm. And they had an interest in these oaths because they too wanted to find a, a solution, right? To pledging your loyalty to the king, to be sure, but also not raising the ire of Rome. And so they had a vested interest in this well. And so they were interested in the way in which these Catholic lay people, uh, George Calvert and, and Cecil Calvert especially, um, were also trying to make um, uh, inroads into, um, into this very, very complex and, and frankly dangerous foray. Um, and so I, I sort of used um, Questier's sort of hints in a footnote um, to uh, mine those archives. And I found not just that oath, but several other oaths that um, the Calverts were interested in and were, in fact, drafting. And um, so previous historians have uh, simply assumed right, that the Calverts had uh, negotiated these English and Catholic um, allegiances, um, especially because, after all, they, they have an English Catholic or so-called Catholic colony, um, but this these draft oaths actually show the way in which these legal minds um, thought about these dual identities. so let me just say briefly what what these oaths show mm-hmm. um, in, in some, what they are willing to swear, less, especially Cecil Calvert, is frankly most of the oath of allegiance um, and and because they're willing to swear most, most of the oath of uh, this raises alarm bells from a papal envoy um, who's um, clandestine in Rome uh, Giorgio Panzini. he's a very, very um, eccentric um, character, and at one point he describes all these um, oath of allegiance controversies, uh, which reach uh, to the level of the monarchy, as very aromatic. Right? These controversies <laughs> are very aromatic, and um,
1: meaning they smelled wrong, or
2: the, it, I think he or something what he Yeah, I think he means something uh, like um, uh, now we're cooking, right? Uh, (laughs) That's one interpretation. I mean, another might be um, uh, things are getting kind of um, uh, precarious, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, you know, we have sort of Panzini who, you know, um, sometimes is unreliable in his reporting, um, but he mentions, right, the Calvert's trying to make this oath. So here it is, finally. Um, these oaths um, uh, in a manuscript form that I could uh, finally compare with the original oath. And what's interesting is that Cecil Calvert is willing to swear most of the clauses. Um, What he's not willing to do is declare the beliefs heretical, Hmm. right? Because if you declare these beliefs heretical, you've basically called previous pontiffs heretics, Hmm. Um, right? And so what we get is a very, very fine sort of grained uh, view here that accepts the, the, the basic premise that the king is sovereign, right? And the Pope does not have the kind of power to intervene in civil affairs, right? Of, of this country. Um, but he's not, you know, George Calvin and Celso cover they're not willing to declare these beliefs heretical. They're willing to swear against them, right? In principle, but not declare them heretical. Um, mm-hmm. There's also some interesting sort of logic, logical distinctions that are being made as well um, that readers can can uh, look at in the book. But effectively, what happens is uh, Cecil Calvert says, here's the kind of oath that I'm willing to swear. Um, I think this is probably going to be good as well for any Catholic coming to my colony. Um, And Panzini and, you know, basically the cardinals in Rome say it's it's still not acceptable. You Mm -hmm. can't mention the Pope's name at all. And by the time we get to 1638 and 39, when we have the act uh, concerning uh, the swearing of allegiance, which is sort of the Maryland law on the oath of allegiance, um, we have no mention of the Pope whatsoever. So suspending it in, in a kind of limbo. Right, um, we don't really want to say either way what the pope power is. We're simply interested in swearing uh, allegiance to the king, his successors, and we'll let you know the Privy Council know if we hear of any you know assassination attempts, and that's pretty uncontroversial, right? Um, and so. You know, effectively, what we have is um, a fealty oath, a very, very simple oath that uh, pledges allegiance to the king. And that passes the test by, by the time we get to the late 1630s. That's sufficient, in other words, hmm. um, to, to prove your loyalty to the king and to pass the censors of Rome, effectively. Um, and that's what allows Catholics to uh, emigrate to, to Maryland and it's what allows Catholics to um, have a, um, a colony own a colony in english territory
1: well i was going to say you talked about the distrust on both sides of the calverts and the whole of uh, english uh, english catholic the, the pressures they were under and could you tell us about the consul conciliary movement and conciliarism and <laughs> you can tell I'm yes. really, i've been practicing yes. it for now, but, and what and what 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 was it and what where, where does the name derive and what were the what were the councils from whence the name derived
2: very good question. So, part of um, this book is an intellectual history, right, mm-hmm. of how Catholics became American. I mean, there are many ways in which we can understand how Catholics were um, not just grafted onto American political culture and uh, and laws, but actually were um, sort of formative for those for those laws and those institutions. And what I want to show in the book is the way in which um, there was a certain a set of ecclesiologies, in other words, views of church governance, what's the form of the church, how, how is it governed? who governs it, um, that kind of um, apparatus. Um, so these ecclesiologies were very helpful um, to the major figures in, in the book um, to come to terms with the, the question of civil allegiance. So the story begins in the Middle Ages when um, the Catholic Church has a, a, a very, uh, has an acute problem, which, which is that um, there are multiple claimants to the chair of St. Peter, right? Multiple claimants to uh, the, the papacy, the office of uh, the Pope. And one of the ways that um, this, this uh, is finally resolved is the Council of Constance and in the 15th century. And what we see in the Council of Constance uh, in their formal declarations, is that um, effectively the Pope is uh, not infallible by himself, right? Um, it's when the church speaks infallibly, right? The center of spiritual authority is most fundamentally resides in all the bishops convened in a council, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine, I mean, I think the point of reference for most of your listeners will be the second Vatican Council, right? Mm-hmm. So all the bishops coming uh to the Vatican. Uh, And, you know, propounding uh, doctrine, clarifying dogma, um, uh, you know, imposing certain disciplines and so on. Um, It's that sort of locus of power that conciliarists say is the true form of church governance, right? And the Pope is a bishop. He's the Bishop of Rome. And so he's certainly part of that. uh, And he's first among equals. Uh, He has, um, in addition, a kind of uh, ceremonial role, right? Um, as well as uh, a, a very formal one as being the center of ecclesiastical unity. So it isn't the kind of vision of a kind of Anglican communion where, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury is, is just really, really important. Uh, the Pope is not just really, really important. He's the center of ecclesiastical unity um, and has particular powers, powers, especially in terms of, um, of disciplines um, that uh, he can impose on other bishops and, and uh, the lay faithful. Um, but ultimately, what conciliarism uh, states is that the Pope is not infallible uh, in himself, right? When infallibility is declared, it's, it's declared uh, by, by councils um, in which the Pope is, is one of the bishops. Uh, the other important um, outgrowth of the conciliarist movement that we see in the Council of Constance is a rejection of uh, the Pope's power in temporal affairs of countries, so this, this gets a bit in the weeds, um, but <clears throat> to, to put it um, simply, um, you know, the popes had declared war and peace, right? Declared, uh, for instance, the, the Crusades, um, had uh, been, let's put it this way, sort of power brokers and in international affairs, mm-hmm. uh, had um, expansive territory in the papal states, mm-hmm. uh, was a head of state, is a head of state still, mm-hmm. um, and the claim by s- several popes um, had been that the Pope has the kind of power that um, can direct other civil authorities um, to uh, do what the Pope sees fit, right? Um, hopefully for the sake of, uh, of good morals and, and religion, for the salvation of souls ultimately, um, but nonetheless, um, the kind of power that would um, uh, very much affect uh, the civil affairs of other countries, over which uh, the Pope did not have immediate jurisdiction Right. So think of places like England and France, not just the papal states. And so conciliarists denied that sort of power as well. Um, So it's it's a very complex movement um, from effectively the 14th century to, well, frankly, up until Vatican I, when the church dogmatically declared by a council, no less, that papal infallibility is um, a dogma of the church, that the pope can uh, declare infallibly by himself. Um, but, but in that, that um, sort of uh, medieval crisis of church and state, um, the multiple claimants uh, to the papal um, chair, um, arose this um, very robust uh, um, conception of the church that looks, frankly, a lot like analogous, analogously Republican um, government. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not an absolute monarch determining, you know, what is law, but rather a kind of parliament. You can think of these church councils as a kind of parliament where people um, uh, vote right on on certain measures. And the pope uh, takes the role of a kind of um, uh, perhaps, um, you know, president or prime minister or something like that, um, but doesn't have ultimate authority in the way that absolute monarchs do. Um, so it, it was conceptually sort of congruent with the kind of republicanism that were that was uh, growing also in the Renaissance and uh, period. Um, And by the time, for the purposes of this story, by the time we get to the 18th century, 17th century, 18th century, we have Catholics who have imbibed this kind of tradition, um, mostly through Gallicanism, which is the the French version of conciliarism. Hmm. Um, And it's a rather convenient um, sort of ecclesiology if you want to show that uh, your religion um, does not uh, present uh, political problems. So... Um, just to conclude on this point, John Locke's uh, central argument against Catholic toleration is that, um, is that they ultimately deliver themselves up to a foreign prince.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, you know, since the 14th century, Catholics, uh, at least some Catholics, had denied that, um, that, uh, you know, they deliver themselves up to, to the king of France, for instance, uh, and, um, and they are under their ordinary bishop. Um, but the Pope has no, um, you know, sort of direct authority over them um, in, in that in that way, um, and so. Locke judged this kind of Catholicism, this kind of conciliarist Catholicism, which he's very much aware of, as false and fallacious. He just doesn't think that's real Catholicism. Hmm.
1: He thinks it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fraud or a phony, just a, a stratagem to hide their true allegiances and you, you shouldn't fall for it and it's deceptive. Or...
2: That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, especially when the Pope can just absolve your oath to a king um, uh, you know, uh, why should we trust them? It's, mm. it's the same argument, actually. He, in some ways, he collapses Catholicism and atheism. Atheists can't be tolerated, he says, because they can't keep their nose because they don't swear to a God mm. that they believe in. So, um, in both cases, you can't trust them, um, perhaps for different ways, but, um, that's his argument. And he, he, he levels this argument in his letter concerning toleration with very good knowledge of the conciliar tradition, um, uh, Jeffrey uh, Collins has, has been very good on this um, in his book uh, um, In the Shadow of Leviathan, uh, The Politics of Conscience of, um, in, with John Locke. And um, uh, he, he, he shows definitively, I think, uh, awareness of this tradition and just said it's, it's, not, it's, not, the real, it's not the real thing. Um, Bellarmine, Robert Bellarmine, the Jesuit theologian who had um, argued for uh, papal indirect temporal power, the kind of power that the Pope can intervene in other countries, um, so that's true Catholicism.
1: When did Bellamy live?
2: Um, he's in the, the late scholastic era. So um, this is, he's, he's alive uh, during the Oath of Allegiance controversy in 1606, hmm. um, and, and says that the, the oath um, cannot be sworn, and that um, the Pope does have the kind of power uh, to intervene in, in temporal affairs. Um, and it's not, a, strictly speaking, a temporal power, he says. He says, metaphysically, it's a spiritual power. Um, but um, for for spiritual ends, right, the you know amelioration of 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 evil, um, the salvation of souls, and so on. Um, in other words, you know, having a heretical king or queen, queen in the case of Elizabeth I, um, is a scandal. In other words, it leads people to leave the Catholic the Catholic faith, um, and so for that reason, the Pope can intervene. So it isn't a, a you know a, a a kind of plain power grab. That would be a that would be a um, unjust um, use of papal authority. But if the pope sort of identifies and it's within his ambit to sort of judge whether he does this right or not, um, he's both executor, legislator, and judge on this question. Um, if he judges that it's 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 good for Catholic souls um, for the pope to intervene, then 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 it's a illicit power. Um, and so this is the great debate. And uh, Catholics take two different sides on this question. What I found is that these um, Catholics uh, in America, take the the side of the conciliarists.
1: Definitely, you definitely definitely make that case very well. And it's it's a fascinating intellectual history, as you say. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Michael D. Breidenbach, author of the book, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. And while we're on the subject of, of, of Catholics in general, could you tell me just in a notes and bolts way? Do you happen to know what percentage of the population of England and Scotland and the American colonies were Catholics, roughly, or can you? Is there any way to determine that? What? What? I mean, how big? How big a a, a population were they
2: uh, proportionally? Yeah. So in um, by the time we get to the American founding era, um, sort of mid to late 18th century. One percent of the oh, population. that's that's. that's is I didn't
1: realize it was that small. Wow. Yes. Ten yes. percent or.
2: Oh. Yes. Yeah. It's it's very small, and um, the highest concentration, of course, is in Maryland and parts of Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, but uh, and these are the places where um, Catholics had been, at least at some point in the colonial era, tolerated. Um, and uh, so it's it's very very small population, and mm. therefore um, you know the kind of. Um, interventions that Catholics had um, are outsized impact right I mean it's 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 sort of incredible that um, Catholics were at all part of the American founding given how few their numbers were um, just as a comparison I mean Anglicans Congregationalists and and others um, had a very um, large imprint uh, demographically and also politically so um, so they're against this the kind of Reliable palladium of Protestant prejudices, but also um, they didn't really have strength in numbers.
1: Hmm. Well, one of the things I found interesting, fascinating, was that not only was Carroll the only Catholic to sign the that's Const- no, for the Declaration of Independence, right, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then he was also the wealthiest founder; that he was immensely wealthy. And he I was thought-
2: extremely wealthy. Yes, uh, very very large landowner. I don't know if he's the the, the wealthiest, although most people. Um, uh, would identify him as, as one of the, or if the wealthiest.
1: Yeah, it was probably um, hard to determine they didn't file tax
2: yes, return. That's right, yeah. Um, but he he owned uh, a sizable uh, amount of land um, and also uh, slaves, which mm-hmm. he both inherited and uh, continued to, to um, uh, buy and sell. Um, and uh, unfortunately, only manumitted one of them uh, mm-hmm. in his will. So this is the darker side of our dear-bought liberty, that the Catholics who um, pushed for uh, religious liberty and civil liberty for uh, themselves and for um, other whites um, denied it um, on their own plantations uh, for for, uh, Africans uh, who were enslaved. And um, it's not just Charles Carroll, it's also the Jesuits themselves Mm. who owned... Um, uh, by by their own Jesuit corporations, um, because they don't hold anything uh, in their own name. Um, They held slaves, and um, part of uh, the revenue from selling slaves uh, went to shore up the um, deleterious finances of Georgetown Academy, later college, Mm -hmm. that John Carroll, the first bishop, had um, founded. Um, So it's a very dark history, and um, one of the things that I do in the book is try to contextualize and understand um, this inconsistency, this contradiction of, of liberty for some and not all. Um, and yeah, I thought uh, one, one,
1: yeah. one fascinating thing that you make the point in the book is the fact that they, in a strange way, the Carols, I think it was the Carols in particular, made the point that I am a slave owner, therefore I'm a gentleman, therefore I'm a person of property and distinction Therefore, I deserve even more. That's why I deserve religious liberty. And I have these slaves to prove that I'm a, I have a stake in the country. And so the slaves, by a, a very twist, kind of perverse logic, became a, a reason, a justification for their arguments for liberty. That's right. And
2: so um, this this, you know, dovetails off of um, excellent work um, by um, historians many decades ago who have argued that in, 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 in some ways, American freedom rests on the back of slaves, that mm. you had to provide a certain point of contrast of what liberty isn't right. And um, and slaves can't own slaves. Mm. Right. That's that's a maxim. And um, and. So for Charles Carroll of Carrollton, for instance, to own slaves, is, is one way to show that he's not a slave himself. And of course, that was the, um, the great cudgel against Catholics, that they were uh, mental slaves, slaves to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is his way of registering himself as, as a reliable member of the uh, southern um, quasi aristocratic elite. Um, I mean, it's, it's not nothing that he styles himself of Carrollton, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. um, an aristocratic air to him that Alexis Dick Tocqueville actually mentions when uh, Tocqueville meets him uh, at the sunset of his years in Maryland. And um, he says that there was a, a kind of air of aristocracy about him, mm-hmm. uh, one of the last aristocrats of, of America.
1: And Tocqueville uh, knew an aristocrat when he saw one. That's right. That's
2: right. <laughs> and um so he's, he's sort of sort of astonished by by this um by this character um and so you know th- i think that the the question of slaveholding is not just one of oh well um he you know he inherited uh them um he continued to to um keep them by by more slaves um and this is his way of, of showing that he's part of this elite and so when other um, American founders talk about him, they usually mention his um, extremely high degree of learning, which mm. was incredible. He was educated, uh, not in um, Maryland um, uh, or anywhere in American colonies, because of course those are all Protestant institutions, mm. uh, but in France where the Jesuits had colleges and where English Catholics um, sought refuge uh, for their education, because of course Catholic education was banned Um, And so incredibly high degree of learning and also his wealth. So these are the two markers. And so, you know, John Adams will say something like, you know, he was a, um, you know, a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, yet a zealous for our cause. And so it's showing the kind of um, surprise, right, of a Catholic who is for the American Revolution, who is highly educated, right, not the kind of mental slave that, um, you know, people like John Locke would uh, label Catholics as.
1: Well I wonder if you could discuss the fact that there was there any tension between the Carols, between the Calverts who actually were aristocrats by birth and the Calverts who kind of assumed I'm, I'm sorry the, the the Carols who sort of a, who assumed an air of aristocracy with but actually worked their way up from from not humble origins but from from less 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 a lesser lineage if you of a blue less blue blood in other words was there right was right. there sort of a, was there a, a tension between them and did they did the fam- the families interacted to a certain extent and, at least in your in the book there was some that one one that one of the carols would press the, one of the calverts to do a certain policy approach that, that the calverts were not willing to do and, and so forth
2: yes yes well Of course, all aristocrats start somewhere. And so um, George Calvert um, was a a kind of social climber and an upstart. Um, He was uh, the son of uh, tenant farmers in Yorkshire Mm -hmm. and um, ascended to the highest uh, civil position in England, uh, the first secretary of state to the king. It's an incredible rise and Mm -hmm. a rise that um, is only possible because he left his childhood faith. Um, by coercion mm. um, and uh, conformed to the Church of England, uh, was able to go to therefore Trinity College to Oxford um, and and rise to civil ranks um, and was then knighted and, and given uh, an, an Irish title, which is not the same thing as an English title to be sure during this time, but uh, a title nonetheless and um, a, a pension from it but but it's I think it's striking that it, simply because um, he had to go to, to the New World uh, to make um, his financial prospects uh, more sound. I mean, a, a, you know, someone who's firmly within the English aristocracy would not necessarily uh, feel the need to do that. So,
1: Michael, uh, I was just say, one of the wonderful things about your book is the is the details of the really petty slights that Catholics had to endure. And one of them, I think it was one of the carols who went to the Derby and he yes. he, he could not own a horse. Yes. He could bet on the horses, but he couldn't actually own a horse above a certain level because Catholics weren't allowed to do that. And it was just fascinating things like that, that here he was, this incredibly wealthy man, but he couldn't own a horse because there was this prohibition, on the, but he could bet the equivalent or many times the equivalent of what each horse was worth. But.
2: Right, right. You know, So much of our language hope is embedded in these um, in these uh, um, sort of prejudices. Um, so, you know, don't have a horse in the race, right? Um, and, you know, why not? Um, yes, Catholics <laughs> are prohibited um, and, uh, or, or beyond the pale, we say this, and, you know, that that's a confessional um, uh, sort of um, conflict, right, right in, in, in right. Ireland. Yeah, sure. um, and so um, those who are beyond the pale are, you know, those, those are Catholics, those are, you know, the, those are the people who are sort of untoward. and. Um, and so, what we find here is um, is that the the Lords Baltimore eventually um, um, convert to the Church of England. They conform to the established church, um, and uh, you know can rest easy, therefore, because so much of the uh, controversy about Maryland uh, and the first two Lords Baltimore had to do with uh, their being Catholic. Um, and there was a sizable Protestant um, uh, inhabitants um, in Maryland who were constantly Uh, Agitating against the the Catholic proprietary, um, the the Catholic owners of Maryland, Um, but they eventually um, conformed to the Church of England. And by the time we get to Charles Carroll, uh, a young Charles Carroll, who's learning the ways of um, the English aristocrats um, and trying to become a gentleman, um, learning law. Uh, But he, of course, can't get to the bar. Uh, He can't actually be a certified lawyer because he's Catholic. Mm. Um, But he's he's hobnobbing with um, Frederick Calvert, who's about his age, um, sort of 20 something teenagers. um, And they're talking about what's happening in Maryland. And um, Charles Carroll of Carrollton's father is incensed that, uh, you know, Catholics will be double taxed. Um, They're still prohibited from holding public office. Mm. Um, And so because of the Protestant takeover in Maryland government by this point, um, you know, there's no longer a Catholic proprietary, there's no longer a Catholic government, and uh, Catholics have some of the similar injunctions against them that they had faced um, uh, a century before. So Charles Carroll of Carrollton is is, um, talking with uh, the owner of Maryland still, and uh, really gets nowhere, but this is all sort of, I mean, we can say this retrospectively, training. For this young, you know, uh, politician who um, who really can't hold up public office yet, but um, mm. who really has the talent for it, um, if if he is simply afforded that opportunity.
1: Yeah, I was going to say one of the most. I, I read, as I say, I read every word of your book, and including the index. And one of the it was one of the most touching index entries I've come across about one of the. Carols and I make. I also want to tell listeners that in the book you do have to keep track of. Of there were at least three carols that are just, or actually four, if you count there the cousins as well. There was John Carroll and Daniel Carroll, who are also figures. Rather, And there were three Charles, and we'll, we'll get That's to Rose. those. I <laughs> But I was going to say that one of the Charles, the index entry, it says the index reads lack of religious liberty, comma personal experience of. So he had the lack of the, the personal experience of it. He was fighting for it, but he didn't, he didn't experience it. He had no, he knew what he wanted, but he wasn't personally a, a, a beneficiary of it, which was I thought rather touching. And,
2: That's right. And I think uh, so much of um, Charles Carroll of Carrollton's imagination is formed by his father. And you mentioned sort of touching index um, entries, but but really touching uh, letters that are written between father Mm. and son. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dear Papa, dear Charlie is how they saluted each other. And um, uh, the wonderful work that's been done by the um, Charles Carroll of Carrollton paper editors um, in three volumes, and uh, another three volumes, hopefully, will be pu- published soon. Um, wonderful letters uh, that have been transcribed and annotated for us that uh, show the deep, um, you know, uh, personal communications between them.
1: Um, and he didn't let his father down. He became a person of great distinction. And that's you? right. That's right. Yeah. And, and they uh, were separated for well, just think in those days, no email, obviously. <laughs>
2: Right. And, and so letters were the only means of communication. Um, his father visited him at least once um, when he was uh, in, studying in France, um, uh, in, in part because he wanted to petition uh, Lord Baltimore at the time uh, personally, um, uh, but also in order to perhaps seek land in uh, what they call Louisiana, right? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, French territory. And this raises all sorts of, you know, loyalty questions, yes. um, simply because, you know, Charles Carroll of Annapolis, um, the father, um, said, look, if, if we are not going to be secure in our religious and civil liberties, we'll, we'll go, you know, westward and, uh, settled in, in, um, sort of Louisiana and, um,
1: and at one point, north north to, north to Canada as well. That there was a th- they threatened at one point to just decamp to Canada, right? And-
2: Catholics would do that, yeah. Catholics, uh, loyalists, uh, during the revolution, um, and so you know this obviously shows uh, the fluidity of of of, of loyalties, um, national loyalties. It also was um, a way in which um, uh, they they might even betray some some disloyalty. Right, yeah, I was against. I
1: was bothered by that. I was I I felt that the money was being thrown around with a little bit of arrogance. That well, I'm if I'm going to take my money and my wealth and my power and leave, and I just thought, right. well, if you're trying right. to prove your loyalty, that's probably not the most tactful way to go. Through.
2: Right. I, it, I, I. One way to read that is it, it's desperation. I mean, yeah, the fact true. that he would he would go for months at sea, um, to talk with you know. Uh, uh, King Louis' uh, advisors to try to, um, you know, uh, uh, gain some land. I think, you know, th- they've really reached a desperate point and it's not just about, I think, uh, money, it's also about honor. Um, you know, the, the carols, the carols um, trace their, their lineage to um, Irish kings. Um, there's a deep sense, uh, felt sense of, of, of honor and prestige. Uh, that they uh, feel is not being honored by uh, the current government, and so yeah,
1: I was, I was going to ask you about that—the the tension between the Calverts, who were deeply English, and the Carrolls, whose origins were in Ireland. Did that, did that affect the flavor of their Catholicism at all, or or was it was there a, stra- a, stra- a sort of Irish strain of of more open defiance than the English, who were used to living under, uh, having to to deal with their their fellow Englishmen, with the Carols were sort of. Adopt, became Englishmen. but the, Is that correct? Or am I misreading how English the Carols were?
2: Well, I think, you know, by the time we get to Charles Carroll of Annapolis, the father and his son of Carrollton, um, they're fairly Anglicized. And uh, there's some evidence to suggest that their um, most proximate ancestors were part of um, the uh, Irish who were most um, sympathetic to uh, to English, um, let's call it occupation, um, and so the, the by the time we get to Charles Carroll of Carrollton and uh, his study in Europe, you know his father asks him to, you know, would you would you kindly do some genealogical research you know, while okay. you're there, and he said he, he effectively dismisses his father um, which, um, you can chalk up to kind of adolescent uh, rebellion, but, but I think there's a deep sense in which, um, he just doesn't want to, uh, relive that past. What's the use, mm. right. Of talking about the way in which, uh, we were disenfranchised. Mm. Um, and he sort of wants to move on and he wants to be, um, a, a, you know, um, part of an English gentleman class. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that, that I found really interesting are, the way in which portraits are done. And uh, there, there are several um, reproductions of these portraits. Yeah, they're, architectural very, they're designs. very effective
1: in the book, yeah.
2: Thank you. And um, what we find is Charles Carroll uh, is a kind of maybe parting keepsake, right? From his time in England, as he commissions Joshua Reynolds, um, who is a very famous portrait artist at the time. You it know,
1: shows how much money they had, because that, yes, would, not indeed. A,
2: <laughs> that indeed. would not have
1: been a cheap, a cheap, uh, a cheap engagement of an artist. But.
2: Right, and I think that the the commission is very conspicuous. Uh, it's the same uh, portrait artist who who paints the Prince of Wales, later King George III, mm. um, and so we have this really ironic moment in which you know around the same time the portrait artist is is painting both a future revolutionary and a future uh, king. Um, but that's the sort of um, uh, sort of style and sensibility that that Charles Carroll wants to project. Right, he wants to be a, a dyed-in-the-wool Englishman. Mm. And a Catholic. And he wants those two identities to work. He, he's not so much interested in um, you know, being Irish. Mm. Um, he, he acknowledges it and he sees it as a, as a kind of wound that needs to be avenged. Mm. Uh, he quotes Ovid there um, uh, in terms of the kind of vengeance that he sort of feels in his adolescence against what the English did. Uh, but yet he wants to be English. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, any American founder has this sort of moment of identity crisis too, right? Are, are we, what, what, what does it mean to be American at this yeah. point? Because, yeah, um, definitely. and so in some ways, Charles Carroll feels this even more keenly because of the intersection of, of, uh, that national identity, but also that religious identity, uh, identity that had been seen as incompatible with, with the English one.
1: Well, you provided me the perfect seg- this perfect segue. Speaking of relationships and identity and Catholic identity, and then and the relationship within the family, so that way we could discuss John Carroll and the relationship yes. because he's a fascinating character. I had ne- I just I I think I might have seen his name on you know peripherally over the years, but I really didn't know who he was. And the fa- the fascinating fact that yeah, they had to get their educations on the continent often together.
2: That's right. They 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 boarded the same ship. Um, to cross the Atlantic at a very tender age. Um, I think it's sort of 11 or 14, something like that. Um, Very, very young. And in fact, Charles Carroll of Carrollton um, never would see his mom again. Mm. Um, She died and he was the only child so, um, th- you know, this is very painful, um, mm. this kind of upbringing that you'd have to be sent. And it's not just boarding school. I mean, this is across mm. the the ocean boarding mm. school. And um, so J- John Carroll also uh, goes to these Jesuit colleges and, in fact, becomes a Jesuit himself.
1: Mm. And you... you- sure. Um, you you discuss at length the the the, the I mean uh, and it, it at interesting length I shouldn't say at length because that implies it's not fascinating but in great in rewarding detail the the the, the relationship which is which is very fraught between the Carols and the Calverts and the Jesuits and um, I want to jump forward a little bit in time because because we're, we're not I have I have you for only a little while longer but I wanted to say in your book you make a fascinating case about about the fact that John Carroll and his his Episcopal peer at the time Samuel Seabury, Se- Seabury, and you say they were, they were installed at roughly the same time. John Carroll as the as a the the first bishop in in a Catholic bishop in the United States in the new United States, and you make the the, the rather uh, I think very important and kind of striking actually striking comment, You. Re- I wrote, I'll read it, the American Revolution ended not only with the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, but also with the consecration of Seabury as an American bishop one month later when Americans cut both civil and ecclesial ties with their king. And that was interesting because you spent quite a bit of time discussing a non-Catholic figure in Seabury. I wonder if you could talk about his relationship, if any, with with John Carroll and what the significance of, of their their ins- installations, I, I suppose that's the correct word, as bishops at, at precisely the same period and what that meant. And also, could you discuss a little about about Benjamin Franklin's role in the fact that he didn't want a role was interesting that the Catholic Church didn't understand that they kept pressing him for yes. recognizing this and Benjamin Franklin's, no, that's your problem. I and mean, that's 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 our, that's not our affair and that's the whole point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, right, so, right. So this brings up a, a, a good point that um, the book is, is is the history of American Catholics, um, but it is also a history of uh, American liberties and loyalties mm-hmm. and how the United States eventually uh, came to terms with uh, religious pluralism and uh, an increasing kind of secularity um, that... Um, uh, th- uh, you know, in other words, you can't take established churches for granted anymore. And I think the Anglican context here um, is really important to understand that story. Um, Anglicans have a fairly awkward problem during the Revolutionary uh, War, and that's why so many of them were loyalists, which is that um, the priests and uh, had to take um, an oath, um, not just... Um, you know, these, to, were, these were Anglican priests, correct? That's right. Um, Anglican priests had to take sort of a, a, an oath, not just to their to their bishop and so on, but also to the king as um, the, not only their temporal lord, but also the supreme governor of the church that they uh, are ministers uh-huh. in. Mm. And so, um, you know, to declare um, independence is also to throw uh, into question the very authority, the spiritual authority that Anglican ministers uh, and um, and by extension, their um, lay people had. So um, this is very very um, uh, uh, acute when it comes to uh, the problem of bishops, because bishops have to get, take that oath to the king in both the spiritual and the temporal um, di- uh, uh, dimensions. And you know, bishops are really important for Episcopal religions uh, like Catholicism and, and Episcopalianism, as it would be understood. Um, You need bishops for um, holy orders to make more priests, as it were, um, in the sacrament uh, or in that uh, ceremony. Um, They um, are especially important for disciplines and, again, providing that kind of ecclesiastical unity uh, and so many other reasons. And so when American Anglicans want um, a bishop, uh, they have this problem, which is that every Anglican bishop has to swear this oath. Um, and so what they find is a tradition in Scotland called the non-juring tradition, which mm. simply means they don't swear oaths to the King. Um, and so that's rather convenient. Um, and, uh, so they initially try to, uh, receive permission from, uh, sort of English Anglican bishops, uh, and, um, they don't want to give that kind of exemption from that oath to the King, but the Scottish non-juring, um, Episcopal bishops are happy to oblige because they they, they think it's an inappropriate enmeshing of the spiritual and temporal dominions. Um, and so what's fascinating about the non-juring tradition is that they also take their cues from the conciliarist movement and they, they quote, um, councils like council of Basil, um, the council of Constance, um, mm. uh, and even so much to say that, uh, these kind of councils are one of the, the first, um, a sort of uh, uh, pre-motions in, in Western history of popular sovereignty. I mean, they go so far as to say a kind of proto-republicanism mm-hmm. is at work here in Catholic church councils. So they're happy to quote Catholic um, uh, um, theologians and so on uh, for their purposes, which is to say that church and state should be juridically separate. Now, yeah. that dovetails nicely with John Carroll, because John Carroll has the same problem, but just with the Pope, right? So yeah. he has to also say church-state separation.
1: I was going to say a fascinating thing in your book was that, that I didn't know this, but at the very time that people, Catholic American Catholics like John Carroll were risking everything to, to throw in their lot with the American Revolution, that the Pope was actually rather ch- rather chummy with George III, <laughs> That's right. And could you That's explain? Right. I wasn't quite clear. why, I wasn't, I wasn't an an astute enough reader to figure out what to understand why the Pope, when the, at this particular juncture in history, that George III and that Pope were were on fairly friendly terms. Was it personality, or whether because because later on George III was was quite anti-Catholic, wasn't he in later decades and.
2: It's two main causes for why um, the Pope uh, has more friendly relations with, um, with George III. The first is that by the time we get to the Hanoverians, um, like George, um, there is a, a kind of quiet um, concession that the Jacobite line uh, won't be uh, really um, considered um, important anymore for the Holy See. Right, that was the that was the whole problem with the Glorious Revolution of 1688, or to put it more neutrally, the Revolution of 1688, um, which is when James II um, is forced to leave, abdicates, leaves, is you know, um, uh, however you want to slice it, um, but he he is now in exile in France. But um, you know, Catholics and others um, think that he's still the king. And so there had been the Jacobite line, the old pretender, the young pretender, and so on. Mm. And the Holy See effectively recognized this Catholic monarch as the king of, of England and Scotland. Mm. But by the time we get to the mid-18th century, that kind of friendly relations with the Jacobite line, in part because you know, they basically just kind of um, lose the kind of soft power that they had before, uh, the Holy See is no longer really propping the Jacobite line up. So that leaves open the possibility that they could have friendly relations with the with the Hanoverian dynasty um, in George III. The other reason why George III and the Holy Father is, uh, are on uh, potentially better terms now is that George III is willing, uh, with Parliament's uh, approval, to grant more toleration to Catholics in England. Now, one of the great ironies of um, this period is that Catholics... Are receiving religious toleration in England in part because they're willing to fight against the Americans to the American Revolutionary War, just as American Catholics are receiving greater uh toleration and indeed liberty, precisely because they're showing their loyalty on the very opposite battlefield, right? The very opposite side of the battlefield. So, you know, both Catholics in England and America are you know sh- showing their loyalty and therefore gaining more toleration. Um, they're just on different sides of the war. Uh, and you can see this in Canada as well. Um, and you know Charles Carroll uh, of Carrollton, John Carroll, Samuel Chase, and Benjamin Franklin, all our sort of um, envoys to Canada to sort of curry favor with the Canadians, even after Congress has called their religion a religion of bloodshed. It's not yeah, a great start. Yeah, that was start.
1: fascinating. The tension. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. the, the fascinating that here we are insulting them and saying, by the way, do you want to ally with us? And and it was just a they tried their best on that diplomatic mission, which you portray very dramatically. But it just was 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 cursed from the from the get-go. I,
2: Seems- that's right. That's right. And um, you know, um, Catholics are praying to the same God for for different different results in the war. I mean, Bishop uh, Briand, who Briand, who is um, uh, the Quebec Bishop, um, threatens to excommunicate any Catholic who consorts with John Carroll during this diplomatic mission. Hmm. Um, and well, so, i
1: not put the kibosh on that. Yes.
2: And so, you know, effectively, the Quebecois, as you in know, a priest. Um, are, are, um, you know, following um, the the loyalist line here and saying, you know, Britain actually has given us a lot of religious toleration. Um, And uh, so why do we need the Americans who have called their religion, a religion of bloodshed and war? Mm. Mm. Um, And so, you know, um, I think what we find um, with, with John Carroll is someone who, as a priest, Um, is trying to walk a very fine line by not intervening too much in politics, but at the same time realizing that in order for Catholics to enjoy the freedom of their church and free exercise of their religion, um, he has to sort of um, lead uh, the Catholic church as the ecclesiastical superior and sort of push in the right directions to show his loyalty in the first instance, and then try to push certain policies. So, John Carroll, under a pseudonym, for instance, writes um, two public letters um, in support of a no-religious test for public office. Uh, as an example, he um, has a very public debate with a, a Catholic-turned- Anglican uh, minister who says that you know Catholics um, uh, can't be you know um, good good citizens. And John Carroll, uh, you know, cites uh, conciliarist-friendly uh, arguments in favor of their um, you know, uh, civil allegiance uh, to, to the United States. So he's a very active um, bishop, uh, one who doesn't really shy away from politics um, in the way that uh, we might see some bishops doing today. He, he does see his role as being the sort of public face for, for, um, for the Catholic Church. And that's what makes his decision, I think, um, to uh, choose the Neo-Roman a design by Benjamin Henry Latrobe for the Baltimore. Cathedral. Yes,
1: I was going to say that's so fascinating. A fascinating. That's a fascinating. I, I mean, as you can see, I just said, now this is a fascinating part of the book. It's so <laughs> fascinating. But you, you, touch, you touch. I, I just want to tell the readers, the listeners, that not only do you discuss architecture fascinatingly, but then there's this whole other other aspects that you discussed that what was happening in other parts of the Atlantic world in Barbados and Jamaica. And I wish we had, I wish I had you longer to discuss all of that. And it, yeah, it was, I was, I'm sorry, I interrupted you about, about what the, what that, what the architecture signified and why, and why it was such a bone and why Le Probe pulled out. About yeah, the, I was think- it was this question of design and also a question of, 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 of ambiance or, or message that, that one of them wanted to send and the other didn't. And,
2: yeah, I think that you know Carol's decision uh, to choose one design over the other sort of encapsulates a lot of what I've been saying, um, which is that Benjamin Henry Latrobe was commissioned by Carol and the trustees of the cathedral um, to to design this this cathedral. Baltimore is the first diocese, ordinary diocese in the United States. That's very important, uh, in, in part because um, previously there had been no diocese in what the Catholic Church would call heretical countries. In other words, countries that doesn't have a church establishment. So it's sort of remarkable that the the Holy Father would even um, grant the a diocese in a non-Catholic country. And that shows in some ways the pragmatism of the, the Holy See at this point, right? The way in which they see America, um, although they, they don't really know what's going on, uh, they really struggled in categories or right, to think about what kind of country is this if it doesn't have an established church, right? Nationally. Um, but nonetheless, there's a diocese and it needs a cathedral, therefore, and you know it's significant that Carroll chooses the same architect that Thomas Jefferson chooses to redesign the U.S. Capitol. Right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're finding someone who um, who's an amazing architect in terms of skill, but also someone who is associated with one of the great monuments to American republicanism. And so Latrobe comes back with two designs. One is a a kind of neo-Roman, neoclassical um, design with some interesting embellishments that are not neoclassical, and then other is a kind of neo-Gothic uh, um, design. Um, it's not your sort of Chartres cathedral with incredible flying buttresses, but it's it's neo-Gothic, kind of perpendicular style that you would see in England, uh, where Latrobe studied. And you know the the, the bishop John Carroll um, assesses each one and says. I'm going to go for the neo-Roman one. And that mm-hmm. is much more in line with, say, the US Capitol and other kind of uh, you know, governmental buildings at this point, contrary to Latrobe's suggestion that he should go with the neo-Gothic, because Latrobe thought that would be more in line with um, the Catholic Church, right? He's, he saw Catholic churches as being Gothic. And Carroll's decision was not in my estimation, based on, you know, as kind of aesthetical judgment that he preferred the Roman design rather than the Gothic. Um, In fact, I found in his, his um, diaries during his journey um, throughout Europe um, that he actually was very fond of Baroque and Gothic architecture, but he wanted to align the American Catholic church with, um, with American republicanism to show to those outside the walls of that church um, that Catholics could be good Americans
1: and the, the rather prosaic personal aesthetics of Protestants, which were rather stark <laughs> Congregationalist. Yeah, well, yeah. I, well, I've got one more question, Michael. I'm, and uh, I don't know if this is kind of unfair of me to introduce this at the last minute. But in the you say you refer to something called the stand, standard secularization thesis. And you say, permutations of the major Republican and liberal theses still lack engagement with American Catholicism and I, I wonder if you could give us like a, a a quick minute on that and say and ask do you, do you think you accomplished that did you did you engage that in your book. And was that, are you happy with that? And I've noticed that the the reviews have been splendid. I mean, people have said, this is a, all over across the map, they said, this is a major contribution, not only to the study of Catholicism or the history of religion, but to the study of the constitution. And I went back and read the constitution (laughs) or or the parts of it that you address. And and I understood finally, why the freedom of religion is called is the first, the first, freedom, why it's called that, because it is the first one that's mentioned, the First Amendment, which I, I learned from your book. And But, but do you think that you accomplished what you set out to do in the book to, to discuss, we need to bring in Catholics into the discussion of the founding better? I think I certainly think you did, and I'm not a Catholic partisan at all. So,
2: Well, thank you. I, I'm very grateful for those kind words, um, both from you and the reviewers. Um, I, I do hope I accomplished it. Um, what I have in mind is um, you know, you talk about sort of the standard story, right? The standard story is that Protestants came uh, to the New World, fleeing from religious persecution in some way. The, under uh, you know, against great odds, they they built you know these small settlements um, in
1: Massachusetts
2: Bay Colony and Virginia and so on. And eventually, um, you know, their their um, their children, 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 you know, came to um, to great prominence and um, you know helped to form uh, this United States. Um, Catholics, by and large, um, have been uh, uh, you know very much a footnote to that story, if mentioned at all. Mm. And part of the book is is simply to uh, showcase um, the the ways in which Catholics were not just foils, uh, were certainly not foils uh, to the American founding, um, and or certain just or or just part of the American founding, but actually sort of founders and framers, right, of the Constitution. Mm. Um, of the Maryland Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, part of the Declaration of Independence, part of the formation of um, so the, the first laws that we have of this country. And indeed, um, one Catholic was even the first historian of the First Amendment, um, you know, Thomas Lloyd, the stenographer who had written down and has become the kind of standard uh, document for What happened in the First Federal Congress when the Bill of Rights were being drafted and discussed, he was Catholic. He was a student of John Carroll, no less. Mm. So what I want to show and very minimally is the way in which Catholics were part of this story, not just part of it, but active participants and shapers of the American story.
1: Well definitely but, succeed. And I want to recommend that people visit your website and watch this wonderful dramatic trailer that you have for the book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's really fun because it it made me want to read the book because it does it does it does in a very theatrical fashion show what the, the what what were they, the travels and who was involved and in. uh, I just want to say ap- apropos of Thomas Lloyd and, and and your 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 point about making the The the, the establishing how important they were in the founding and that they were heavily involved with. And the relationship with Madison is fascinating. That's delineated in the book. But you say of Charles Carroll that liberty to him was not just freedom from the law, but the freedom to make law. He wanted to be able to make law. And I thought that was a very, and also that's, that's the legal history aspect of the book is fascinating. Well, I have taken up a lot of your time and I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now?
2: Well, thank you. Um, I'm working on history of naming in early America. So oh. one of the things um, that... Naming, uh, of
1: naming of children or naming
2: na- of places? Naming uh, all, all, all the above. Oh, um, interesting. The, it's sort of a thematic question about how Americans uh, created uh, or imagined their political community through the, um, the activity of naming the... Mm the things and people around them and the concepts around them. So what what sort of struck me, um, it was a conversation I had at the Rothermere American Institute at the University of Oxford during tea one morning. And we got onto the question of um, sort of why, why Georgia is still Georgia uh, hmm. as a name, because of course, Georgia is named after uh, King George, uh, not George III, but um, but but a monarch no less. Maryland, as we said uh, during this conversation, uh, named after the queen consort, um, and we can go you know down the list of all the royal names. And the BBC uh,
1: still pronounces it Maryland.
2: Maryland, yes, <laughs> and um, and we have the College of William and Mary. I mean, these are incredibly obvious and not so obvious royalist uh, names. Why does it? Why do they endure? after the american revolution and you know the the comparison here is the french revolution when the french revolutionaries at least one stage of the french revolution renamed everything including yeah, the year
1: zero sort of thing. yes
2: exactly the calendar they renamed time and so um, <laughs> Part of, this is, part of this is to motivate the question of, of what kind of revolution the American Revolution was. This is a, a sort of old and enduring debate, but also to, to open up uh, you know the, the aperture a little bit here and and think about um, the way in which um, uh, the, the, the relationship between uh, linguistics and liberty, right? The way in which the very act of naming is a kind of uh, um, indication of your authority. So the fact that, you know, um, these English, uh, Englishmen can, can simply state uh, what this place is called, right, is a claim over authority, right, and Christopher Columbus does this immediately when he sees something, he says, well, I, you know, I'm I'm going to name it this after our, you know, our Lord and Savior, or I'm going to name it that after um, our, our king and queen, so um, there, there's a kind of um, opening, I think, a very unexplored um, topic here of, of the relationship between linguistics or the naming of things and liberty and authority. And that's what I would want to explore in a second book.
1: Well, that's very exciting. I remember reading once that in the 19th century, that male names shifted from Old Testament names like Josiah and Ezekiel to the names of English kings. So suddenly you had your son was Edward <laughs> or George or William. And right. I thought that was rather fascinating. Well, I'm looking for, and be sh- when I'm looking forward to that book because we'll have you right back here in, on the New Books Network. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Michael D. Breidenbach, author of the book *Our Dear Bought Liberty: Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America*. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye.